Our Father, we praise you and thank you for John. We thank you for the message that he came to give. We pray that as we hear him, as we hear his words that have been faithfully passed down to us, that we would be challenged to see who Jesus truly is. We pray that our hearts would be open to receiving him and that we would desire to be like John, proclaiming him who has saved us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for our sake. Amen. There's been a number of times when I've come home and been greeted by a wonderful aroma coming from the kitchen and the sound of something frying. As I move into the house, as I breathe in deeply and and move into the kitchen, I uh, see my wife, Beck, uh, cutting up some veggies and I ask her with excitement, trying to keep the saliva from staying in my mouth, what's cooking? And she replies with some amusement, it's just onion. I'm sure you've been there before. I heard some laughs, so I'm guessing you've been there. You know as well as I do the incredible aroma of frying onions. It fills you with excitement and anticipation at the coming meal. But while the aroma is incredible, there's nothing particularly special about the onions, is there? You don't want a meal of onions, or at least I don't. And as we come to our passage in John 1... As we meet John the Baptist, we can see that he's a bit like onions that are frying. He fills the people with amazement at what he's doing and anticipation at what he will do. But he is adamant that he is nothing special. In fact, the only thing that he admits is special about himself is that he points forward to someone greater. Just like onions point forward to the meal that's to come, John the Baptist points us forward to Jesus, the Christ. John's message is a simple one. Listen to him. Believe him. Believe John's testimony about Jesus. Now, of course, when we believe uh, John's testimony about Jesus, we have to respond rightly to Jesus, don't we? And and we'll, we'll get to that. We'll talk about what that looks like. But first, we need to believe John's testimony about Jesus. Let's look at verses 19 to 28, where we meet the voice calling out. That's what John calls himself in verse 23. I'm the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. The voice calling out. And he has to say this because in verse 19, the Jews from Jerusalem have got him wrong. They've heard that there's someone baptising at the Jordan River. And just like me smelling onions and, and thinking that there's a wonderful meal, the Jews have jumped to the conclusion that John was the Christ, the long-anticipated king of Israel, or at least that he was claiming to be the Christ. But then we see verse 20, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. 
And still, because he was baptising, the Jews thought there must be something special about him and so they go through all the options of the people that they're expecting at the end of the age. Verse 21, they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Now, Elijah lived around 900 BC and at about 400 BC, God had said to the prophet Malachi, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So there was this expectation that Elijah would return and here comes John at the Jordan River, it says in verse 28, the very place where Elijah was last seen. The smell of onion is intense now. They're filled with anticipation. They ask the question and John says, I am not. In other places, Jesus does say that John is Elijah. But the Jews have misunderstood this. They think that John is the original Elijah, come down from heaven. But really, John is just similar to Elijah. He's got a similar message, a similar mission to call the people to worship the true God. That's why he is Elijah. He's not Elijah come back in the flesh. And so John's being humble here. He's trying to step out of the spotlight because someone else should be in it. And so he says, I am not. I was at a phone store yesterday because my phone had been dropped. The screen was cracked and wouldn't work. I I can't even turn it off. I press the button, but I need to press on the screen to be able to turn it off completely. I can't even do that, so it just needs to run out of battery. As I was being served... I was asked what my name was and me thinking that this guy just wanted to look me up on the computer, I I gave him my last name, Waltz. But he didn't want my name to search for my details. He wanted to know what to call me. And so for the next ten minutes, he was calling me Waltz instead of Jesse. Every time he did it, I'd glance at Beck, who was next to me, and we'd share a small smile, but... I didn't correct him. I I, I let him call me the wrong name because it didn't really matter. We didn't know each other. I wouldn't see him again. Why fix the mistake? It's a bit awkward. But it did matter to John. He corrected them. He didn't let them go go on thinking that he was someone that he wasn't. He, He didn't take on the glory that he didn't deserve. They throw out one more option, the prophet. The prophet that God had promised Moses in Deuteronomy 18 and with one word, no, the balloon of hope is completely popped and in desperation they give up guessing, what do you say about yourself? They ask in verse 22. And so he identifies himself, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3, which we've had read. The only thing special about John is who he is preparing the people for. He is the onion, not the meal. But John doesn't just announce who he is because his identity is tied to the one that he's preparing them for. He can't identify himself without hinting about the one coming. So he doesn't just say, I'm the voice of one calling in the desert. No, he continues the quote 
in Isaiah 40, make straight the way for the Lord. John came to prepare them for the Lord. He was coming, John was the onions. Now, if you were to turn back to Isaiah verse 3, uh, 40 verse 3 rather, you'll, you'll notice that the Lord that Isaiah mentions is in all capital letters. That's how our English Bibles show the covenant name for God, Yahweh. And so John is telling the people, is telling the Jews in a subtle way that the one that he's preparing them for, the Christ, is God in the flesh. No wonder John is so humble, verses 26 and 27, I baptise with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He lowers himself and everything he does because of who he has come to announce. There's no, self, no, no point building himself up because the one that he stands next to is so much greater. We need to believe John's testimony. It was the reason John came. It was the job God had given him to do to proclaim the truth about Jesus, his son. So will we believe? Now, there might be some here who don't want to believe. You don't want to believe his testimony, but as you read it, doesn't it sound authentic? Why would John say no to being Elijah or the prophet? If the people think that's who he is, why would he say no unless he was absolutely dedicated to the truth? And if he's dedicated to the truth, why wouldn't you believe what he says about Jesus? Why why wouldn't you believe that Jesus is God, that he is the Christ? But I'd expect that most of us here do believe John's testimony, at least, at least in our heads. We believe this about Jesus, but it's all too easily forgotten, isn't it? It's all too easy to forget who Jesus really is and to forget our place next to him. So John has uh, told us about himself in these verses, that he's the voice who calls out. And, and while he's said some things about Jesus, he starts to talk about him more and a bit more directly in verses 29 to 31. So he's identified himself, now he identifies Jesus as the lamb who takes away sin. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lamb who takes away sin. It's a strange thing to call someone, isn't it? especially someone that you've just hinted is God. I haven't heard someone called a lamb very often. I've heard it occasionally. Oh, you're such a lamb. I don't think it's been said to me, but I think I've heard other people say it to other people. And it's, it's meant to be endearing, isn't it? Oh, you're such a darling, I think is, is the idea behind it. When we think of a lamb, it's this cute, fluffy thing. But that's not how they thought in the first century. When Jews thought of lambs, they thought sacrifice. They thought of the Passover. 
celebrating that day when God saved them from slavery in Egypt. When God passed over the houses of the Israelites and didn't kill their firstborn because the lamb had been killed instead and its blood put on their doorposts. Or maybe they thought about the lamb in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. A lamb was not cute and cuddly. It was a sacrifice. It died so the people wouldn't have to. It bore the punishment for sin. John saw Jesus and proclaimed him to be the lamb who takes away sin. He is the lamb God provided. People don't like being called sinful, especially today, but I suspect ever, uh, willing to admit that uh, they're not perfect because no one is, but to call it sin, it, it always feels too much to people. Maybe those really evil people over there, you could call sinful, but not me. Maybe you're someone who who thinks this way. There was a man who woke up one morning. He turned on the morning news before heading off to work and he was struck by the sin in the world. He didn't think of it as sin, but he was horrified by the, the mass shootings, the rape, the violence that was reported. But in particular, there'd been a terrorist attack that night, just like we've seen this week. And when he got to work, that's what people were talking about. During the day, he worked hard. He was friendly to his co-workers, even shouting them lunch. Then he went home, read a few stories to his children, had had a wonderful, meaningful conversation with his wife and then went to bed. That whole day, he didn't once think about God. He was shocked by the state of the world, but he didn't ever consider the state of his own heart. And if he had, he would have been surprised to find something that was deceitful and desperately wicked. Just as wicked as those terrorists in the night. All his life he'd been a nice guy, but his maker had never been his concern. He never stopped to think that God actually owned him and that the reason that he had been made was to worship and and bring honour to God. He did okay at loving people, especially the easy ones, but he didn't love God, which is the greatest commandment. And so despite being a nice guy, He was sinful to the core, denying the creator what he deserves. And so, believe it or not, this nice man was sinful and so deserved to die. Just like all of us. But Jesus came. Jesus came as the Lamb of God who takes away sin. Jesus came to be Uh, John came to be a witness for Jesus and he declared Jesus' purpose to die as a sacrifice for sin. 
Just like lambs in the Old Testament would die for the sins of the people, Jesus was the ultimate lamb who would die for the sin of the world. He'd suffer all the punishment for sin. He would bear all the anger of God for sin. Despite himself being perfect, the only person in history who did not deserve to die or experience God's anger. By Jesus' death, the sin of the world has been taken away. Now, this doesn't mean every single person in the world has had their sin taken away. John doesn't mean all people without exception. He means all people without distinction. All types of people have the opportunity to have their sins forgiven through the death of Jesus. It can't mean all people without exception because the rest of this Gospel, let alone the rest of the Bible, warns that those who don't come to faith in Jesus will not be saved. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not, uh, shall not perish but have eternal life. So John has declared to these Jews that Jesus, the sacrifice for sin, isn't just the sacrifice for Israel but he's uh, the sacrifice for everyone in the world who would believe in him. No distinction Whether you're from China, India, Japan, Zimbabwe, Ethiopia, Mexico or Australia, if you believe, your sin is taken from you. And isn't this church such a wonderful example, an illustration of that? It is incredible to look around this room now and see the many different skin colours that are represented. It's great to walk around and to hear all the different accents that people have as they're speaking English and even sometimes to hear a different language being spoken. It's wonderful because we're all here and we're all united together having had Jesus take our sin away. All of us, without distinction. This is John's testimony about Jesus. We've already seen that John is the voice who calls out, but here he testifies to Jesus and tells us that that he is the lamb who takes away sin. And now he moves on. In verses 32 to 34 he says, Jesus is the son who gives the spirit. Verse 32 to 34. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptise with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Now, did the Spirit physically look like a dove when he came down or... He's coming down somehow just look like a dove coming down. can't really tell what John means by that. It's impossible to know. But it doesn't really matter, does it? What the Spirit looks like isn't the issue. It's the fact that he came and he remained on Jesus. 
Of course, this wasn't anything new. The Spirit has always been with Jesus. Jesus is God, after all. John has already said that. John isn't saying that there was a time when Jesus didn't have the Spirit and now finally at his baptism he did. No, this was God announcing to John who Jesus was so that he could announce it to the world. Remember, John had been born to testify. That was his purpose. And now... God had gotten out the big neon arrow and was pointing it at Jesus as the Spirit came down and rested on him. John saw that arrow. He saw the Spirit come on Jesus and so finally he knew who he was to proclaim. He's already said that Jesus is the Lamb who takes away sin and now he says that he's the Son who gives the Spirit. John is baptising with water. He gets people wet and it's a sign that people are turning to God. But it's only a sign. His baptism can't change people. He can't save them. Jesus, on the other hand, he baptises with the Spirit. There's confusion today about what this baptism in the Spirit means. I grew up in a church that said this baptism had something Uh, to do with what happens after you become a Christian and often the sign of it was supposed to be speaking in tongues, in different languages. One time I was at a conference and uh, a speaker encouraged everyone who couldn't speak in tongues to to come up to the front and and he would pray for you and, and you'd be able to speak in tongues. And so me, along with many others, came up the front and he prayed and he encouraged us to start speaking in tongues, to start making noises and all around me people were making noises, supposedly speaking in tongues. I waited. The man prayed some more. The people around me were praying as well and I waited and nothing happened. I've never had that experience. But as I look at the Bible now and as I read it, Look at it a bit harder. I don't think that that's what the baptism of the Spirit is on about. Actually, that idea has only been around for about 100 years. It's not about speaking in strange languages. Jesus himself, just a couple of chapters later, John 3, will explain it. To be baptised in the Spirit is the same as being born of the Spirit. It means that the Spirit comes upon you implants new life into you. He gives you faith to believe, love for God. He he makes you a child of God, eager to serve him. Being baptised in the Spirit is what all Christians experience and it's actually how we become a Christian in the first place. You can't be a Christian unless you've been baptised in the Spirit. It's not something that happens later. It happens to all of us at that moment. Just think about that a bit, because isn't it it wonderful? God has done everything needed for us to be saved and to, to make us his children. Before Jesus, we were all lost in our sin, deserving death and judgment, and we couldn't escape from it. We couldn't stop sinning. We couldn't pay for our sin. We, we didn't want to. And then Jesus came and he, he went to the cross as the Lamb of God, our sacrifice, our substitute. So, and 
So he was at the cross and then he was, he's proclaimed as the Son of God who baptises with the Spirit, who gives us his Spirit so that we believe in him. So everything for our salvation has been done by Jesus. He paid the price for our sin and now he gives us new life to believe what he's done at the cross and to experience that forgiveness. He's taken the sin and he's given us faith to believe it. It's incredible. John was born to testify and like frying onions point, point to an incredible meal, John points us to Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, who takes away the sin of the world, who baptises with the Spirit. Now if you don't know Jesus, this might all sound a bit theoretical and very distant from everyday life. But it's not. This is the most important news that you will ever hear in your life. And it actually impacts you right now because there is a God in heaven and he calls you to believe. You might not know this, but the Bible actually says that he is angry with you. He's not only angry with you, he loves you. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why he offers you the opportunity to believe. But he is angry because you haven't been doing what he made you for. You haven't been loving him with your whole heart. You haven't been loving your neighbour as yourself. You're sinful, just like every other person who woke up this morning. And it isn't enough to come to church once in a blue moon and, and dedicate one morning to him. It's not enough to come to church every week. God demands something more from you. And coming to church cannot take your sin away. Only Jesus can do that. God is angry, but he loves you. And he sent Jesus to be the lamb who takes away sin. Not just the sin of the world, but if you're willing, he'll take away your sin. Everything bad that you've ever done, even those things you didn't realise were bad, all those evil and selfish thoughts, everything will be taken from you and placed on Jesus. And God won't be angry with you anymore because he'll have already poured out his anger, all of it, onto Jesus while he was at the cross. And so will you come? Will you ask God to forgive you? To, will you ask for Jesus to take away your sin? If you do that and come to Jesus and turn from your sin, you will be forgiven. Jesus will baptise you with the Spirit and the Spirit will live in you, helping you to live for Jesus. If you want to talk about that more, then please let us know. We, we want to help you. Will you do what this passage calls you to do? Will you believe John's testimony about Jesus? For those of us who have already believed John's testimony, we should be challenged to be just like him, shouldn't we? John's purpose in life was to be a witness for Jesus. And that's exactly what we're called to do. We are a church on mission. You are a Christian on mission, whether you think that way or not. You've been given a mission by the Lord Jesus himself. He said go in Matthew 28. 
make disciples of all nations of the world. Some of you might start to feel a bit guilty every time evangelism, mission, is mentioned in a sermon. You want to do it, but there's something stopping you. Maybe it's your circle of friends. They they only include Christians. You don't know anyone who doesn't know Jesus. For you, your first step of mission must be to meet people who don't know Jesus. When I moved to Melbourne a few years ago, I only knew Christians and so I had to meet people. Believe it or not, I joined a netball team. What could you do to meet people so that you'll at least have opportunities to tell them about Jesus, the Lamb of God? Or maybe you do know people who aren't Christian but they're only acquaintances and you're not really around them long enough to to talk with them and to, to get past that initial how's the weather type of conversation. Why not invite them around for a meal or have a few people over and get to know them? You don't have to feel the pressure to get the gospel into every conversation. You don't have to feel like a failure if it doesn't even come up that night. You're taking small steps to introducing them to Jesus. If you're really eager to get the conversation closer to Jesus, maybe you could ask them about their family and whether they've got any religious background. Get to know them and engage with them where they are. But we do eventually want to talk about Jesus, don't we? We want to get there. I haven't been very good at at, uh, getting there with my netball team yet. Uh, despite praying for them, praying for opportunities. Sometimes religious things just don't come up in conversation, do they? Especially probably in Australia. And so this week I'm going to invite them to church next week so they could hear Stuart Burgess. It's not often that someone like him comes to your church, so I'm going to take the risk and I'm going to invite them. The worst they can do is say no. Inviting them won't break our friendship and so I'm going to get some invitations and I'm going to invite them. And so will you invite your friends? Will you grab some invitations as well? John was born to testify and we have been born again. We've been baptised in the Spirit to testify. If you don't know Jesus, please listen to John and find forgiveness and new life in the Lamb who came to take away the sin of the world and in the Son who baptises in the Spirit. But if you do know Jesus, strive to be like John, to be someone who testifies about Jesus. Meet people. Spend time with them. Bring up the topic. Invite them to church. Explain that Jesus can take away their sin. Believe John's testimony about Jesus and testify about him yourself. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, once more we thank you for John and for his message. We pray that we would go out conscious that we have that same message, that we have that same Lord to proclaim that he is the Lamb 
who takes away sin. He is the Son who gives the Spirit. We thank you that you have taken away our sin, that you have given us your Spirit. But we pray for those here today who have not yet experienced that and we ask that you would be working in them even now. Please, our Father, bring our friends and our family to faith. Give us boldness as John had boldness and also give us humility as we consider the one that we proclaim. We pray that we would honour you and that we would testify to Jesus in this world. In his name we pray. Amen.